Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Simon Esner, founder of Uncommon Sense and all-round hospitality legend. Coming up on today's show, Simon talks about the first time that he met Phil. But when I got home, I said to my wife, I said, this guy's a nutter. Phil shows a unique command of the English language. Yeah, you keep upgrading your life, it seems, from a position of, uh, of of upgrade. And Simon gives us an exclusive on a new food and drink concept he's been working on. The, the dish of the day was a cup of tea, and the special was toast. All that and so much more as Simon talks us through his epic career journey to date. Simon really has built a life and career around having a positive mental attitude, and is proof as to what you can achieve when you keep believing and when you surround yourself with extraordinary people. Nice work, Simon. Don't forget, we launch a brand new episode each week telling the amazing and always amusing stories from hospitality. So make sure you hit that subscribe button and give us a like and a share across your networks. Let's share these stories as far as we can. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to another edition of Hospitality Meets with me, your host, Phil Street. It's not every day you get to chat to someone who, on the face of it, seems to have touched the lives of quite a number of people in this industry. But today we get to do just that with some marquee brands in his background, including Baxter Story, WSH Limited, which is the parent company for many a familiar brand, but now also the founder of Uncommon Sense, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a lot more detail later on. I'm also delighted to have been on the receiving end of some mentoring from this chap, so I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome to the show, Simon Esther. Well, good afternoon to you, and obviously, Phil, you've arranged the great weather which uh, is fantastic because here we are in the middle of September, the 14th, glorious, beautiful sunshine. Uh, and I get to sit and chat with you uh, and, and just reminisce about some good times, but also talk about the opportunities. So thank you for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. And, and I think actually we've had a couple of chats over the last few months through mm. this wonderful situation that we find ourselves in we probably would have had chats anyway but on a couple of occasions we've had the chat you've you've been sat in the sun but uh but in portugal so i um i'm glad we've got we've brought the sun to you in this country now as well (laughs) thank you very much yes i uh i've been on a few um podcasts and zooms over this covid period and you're quite right in fact i think you asked me when we were chatting is that one of those um, fake uh, backgrounds? Uh, yeah. and, and I said, no, actually, that, that, that's real blue sky. That, that, that exists. Um, uh, so, yeah, very, very fortunate. But uh, another one that wasn't quite as amusing uh, when it was quite warm weather over here, I'd forgotten that I was having a Zoom kind of podcast thing, webinar, and I was uh, enjoying the delights of Estrella Lager uh, copiously. Fabulous. Uh, it was only when I realized I was on camera that uh, the embarrassment ensued. But... Uh, We've got none of that today. Pure vodka only, no alcohol. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to be honest, it's audio only, so you can be drinking yeah. whatever the hell you wish. No, no, very good. So I, I didn't want to kick this off, Phil, because you're, you're good at this and I'm new. Well, that's that's a rumor I've heard, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm going to err on the side of caution. Well, I, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about this for lots of reasons. I think one, every time I've had a conversation with you, you're what I would definitely classify as a glass half full kind of a guy. Do you think that's fair? You seem to see the positive in quite a lot of things. Uh, Absolutely. Um, I think 
generally in in life i i was watching something uh, just the other day uh, actually it was this morning sorry and it was a snippet from a, something that was on television a few days ago or whatever it's an interview with uh, sir captain tom moore uh, this wonderful 100 uh, year old uh, gentleman who's raised yeah. so much money for uh, the national health service uh, and a comment he made really did resonate with me because i'm sure I've said this to my own family and friends and acquaintances, is that tomorrow will be a better day. And I, I kind of agree with Sir Captain uh, Tom Moore uh, and that actually, even if it's all going completely pear-shaped at this moment in time, uh, tomorrow will be a better day. It's another opportunity to get it right. It's another opportunity to, to learn. And so I guess, yeah, I am a, I'm pretty much a, a glass half full. And, and uh, as you know, Phil, uh, and anybody else that's uh, met with me or seen me on the various Zooms, that glass really gets to the halfway point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I try to keep it as topped up as I can. But yeah. no, uh, <laughs> I, I'm very, very fortunate. I, I guess um, uh, really, I, I, I was so like I had Two great parents, sadly no longer with us, uh, two amazing parents, an architect. And uh, uh, my mother was not only a, a theatrical agent for uh, singers and uh, dance acts, etc., but she was also a psychologist. So you know, really sort of dynamic, forward-thinking individual. You can imagine an architect. My father was always looking for uh, the creative element in everything and, and yeah. my mother too in, in her uh, sphere. Question so my brother everything. and I, yeah, yeah. My brother and I were, were super lucky that we grew up in a, a really open-minded, dynamic household, which uh, I'm forever grateful for. And I genuinely mean that. I know it's easy words to say, but I, I am grateful for it. Uh, we did not have, uh, I can't do the whole hard luck story. It was a tough life. We had an average suburban middle-class life. It was, you know, Southgate, North London, uh, a great part of the world for a youngster to grow up in, masses of local friends, lots of open space to run around and burn off energy. And actually, uh, it's just a great time. Good youth clubs, all the things that, you know, sadly are missing in a lot of communities today. We were so, so blessed and joyful to have those. Yeah. And I think having that early start uh, with that, those surroundings really did create for me that opportunity of, of, of positivity. My My father... As a very young man, he developed uh, polio and diphtheria and was in uh, something called an iron lung, which obviously does not exist today. But back when he was a young lad, uh, it was that what they thought the way of dealing with polio um, and diphtheria. And uh, he, uh, he was disabled. So uh, my brother and I grew up in a house with a, a less than able-bodied person. Therefore, to us, of course, he was dead. Um, the fact yeah. that uh, his legs didn't work very well but the rest of his body did. And, and certainly his mind was, uh, my goodness me, so active and uh, very, very intelligent guy, uh, which uh, I, I'm afraid didn't rub off on me, but did on my brother. <laughs> um, but he, um, he, he, I guess, taught us without even saying, he just taught us that you can actually, if you think about it, if there's a hurdle, there's a way of getting through it or over it. Uh, and I remember watching my dad on, uh, we were in Bognor Regis. This is uh, uh, my aunt who's still with us today at 97. My aunt had a little cafe, a oh. uh, little cafe down on the on the seafront in Bognor. And we were down there and we drove down there in my dad's car, which was an old green Ford Poplar. Uh, lovely old motor. Uh, didn't think it at the time, but uh, yeah. <laughs> look back fondly now. And uh, I, I just remember he um, he 
sort of parked in a particular position where due to his uh, his uh, physical challenges, he was unable to get out of the car easily. So uh, my mum sort of said to him, well, why don't you sort of scoot into the back seat and I'll try and drive. He said, you're not driving this car. Have you seen what you've done to your Ford Cortina? So literally what you have is a guy manoeuvring himself out of a window of a car so that he could get out of the car and not have to clamber over anybody. And it was it just stuck with me that he he looked at it, he looked at the situation and said, there's a way through it. Yeah. Um, and made no fuss about it, made no comment of it. And and indeed, neither of any of us did. It was just, well, that's dad and that's what dad does. So I guess growing up in a household like that makes you see the positives in everything. And I'm very, very blessed, uh, to, as I say, to have that. But I, um, uh, I think one of the questions you asked me um, when we were chatting, when I was sitting in the other sunshine, was uh, you know how it all started. And for me, the, I, I can only blame a Canadian TV chef called Graham Kerr. Uh, and I'm quite an old guy now, so this is when I was a youngster, sort of early 70s. There wouldn't have been uh, 10 a penny celebrity chefs back then either, would there? I mean, that would have been no. quite a new thing. Uh, well, the, 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 the celebrity chef was Fanny Craddock and Johnny. Right. And and um, there was the great Graham Kerr with his program called The Galloping Gourmet. And there was one other chap whose name now has gone from my mind, but it will come back. However, Galloping Gourmet, TV program, can't remember what time of day it was on. Obviously, clearly, I wasn't at school and I was watching this program. And it used to be on once or twice a week. I, it certainly felt like that to me now. And what got me to love the idea of being in hospitality is that this amazing uh, cook, I'm sure he's, I, I hope he's still alive because I'd actually, uh, I'd like, well, I'll come back to that later because you ask a question of me um, about uh, who I'd like to have lunch with. But anyway, I, I watched this program and this guy would cook a meal. He'd, uh, and let's, let's call it for the purpose of this conversation, uh, duck a l'orange. So he would cook duck a l'orange. He would plate it up. He would then put it on a gingham-laid tablecloth and then go out to the audience and select a member of the audience to come and join him at this table for two. And he would sit and watch the audience member enjoying the dish. And the look on the audience member's face of enjoying and loving and savouring this food that this man had cooked for him, something happened in my small, young, immature brain that said, (laughs) I want to do that. I want to make people have that experience. Yeah. And that's what put me on the road to becoming a chef. And I, no one else in my family was in case. I mean, my aunt had a cafe in Bogner. Uh, and when I say cafe, I'm saying, it, you know, it was caf. And, it, right. it, you know, the, the, the dish of the day was a cup of tea. And the special was toast. So we're not talking, Careful. you know, uh, it wasn't oak cuisine. But there's it a, made a There's a time and a place. Off. There's a time and a place. <laughs> but I, through um, various uh, friends and connections of, of family, uh, I was given the opportunity in about 1976, 78, so I'd been 14, 15 or so, to, to get a job in the school holidays, washing up in the kitchen of a place called the Sportsman Casino in Tottenham Court Road. We lived in North London, really easy commute uh, from where we lived. So it started one summer, beginning of the summer holiday, the chef, uh, one of my great mentors in my life, a gentleman called Louis Mitter, Austrian guy. And he, he through, as I say, through friends and family and connections, I was given this opportunity to be a kitchen porter. And my dad kind of thought, well, look, you know, 
he'll uh, he'll either love it or hate it. He was certainly encouraging in that he said, look, you know, I'll give you the fare to go up on the tube rather than get in the bus. And uh, you can meet me afterwards when the session finishes at my place of work. He worked in Great Portland Street. So, you know, I had encouragement, but I kind of thought he he was thinking, you know, maybe, just maybe, one of my sons uh, will uh, will join in the world of architecture. Well, my brother became an engineer, and obviously I didn't. Yeah, but that's actually, that. I mean, it's semi-ways critical, isn't it, that, you know, mm-hmm. here you've got a, a parent who basically just let you go and explore your brain, basically. Yeah. Let him yeah. go and find his own path, I'm not going to rail, railroad him. And that's, uh, that's I'm lucky enough to have, have had parents very similar in their, their outlook and it makes a massive difference absolutely i mean both my brother and i um we we really did um uh, go our, our our own ways career-wise and and had full encouragement right in fact to the day that we sadly lost uh, separately both of them they were both as equally encouraging but um mm. so i did the washing up and came home and you know after the first week mum and dad went you know how's that going? i said oh I said, I just i want to get back so I carried on, and, and then obviously the chef, um, Louis Mitter, who was the executive chef of the group, could see that there was a something. Whatever it is he could see, he saw it. And he said, okay, well, look, you know, if you really want to get into this, because by the way, I should add, me and regular education did not mix. The absolute uh, epitome of oil and water, <laughs> we did not mix. Prime reason, uh, A, uh, I thought there was a lot more fun to be had outside of the classroom, um, in town just looking around, doing stuff, playing with my friends. Uh, we were a, um, a, a group of kids that, frankly, until today's, today's world, I think, would be under special measures and, and put in a, in, a, in a very, very high, secure home. Right. But uh, in those days, we were just a, a bunch of scallywags, and I think the teachers were happy that we weren't in the school uh, being disruptive. So yeah. uh, school and me didn't See, get on. Positive, but... positive side of things again. There we are. Absolutely. Yeah. So... Uh, I did, I, Louis uh, Mitter, Chef Mitter said, okay, so you need to have formal qualifications if you want to become a chef, and that's called a city and guilds, and there's a course called the 7061 and 2, and you need to take that. Uh, and so um, mum and dad uh, helped me sort of look into how to find out where I could do that together with uh, Louis Mitter, and we found the college in North London, and I started uh, the 7061 and 2 course. I started off on full time and moved to day release because I realized that I actually liked earning money. Yeah. Um, and that's an important uh, point. So uh, I did that. And listen, for me and co- me in college, uh, I found something I loved. And therefore, my attendance record was exemplary. I was fortunate enough to receive distinctions and passes. I won competitions whilst I was there. I had found where I belonged. And I was uh, in, in seventh heaven. I, there was nothing that I, I, I would do. Nothing would keep me away from going to college to study, to learn, to get that piece of paper or pieces of paper. Because I was told by my uh, mentor and the chef, Louis Mitter, you need to have that piece of paper. That documentation says that you can get a job anywhere. Yeah. So for me, I thought I've got to do it. And uh, and I did. And, and I absolutely I, I loved college, truthfully. There wasn't a lesson I didn't enjoy. Um, the writing, the reading, the, the cooking, the prep, everything, the cleaning. I, I just loved everything about it. That shows you, I think, uh, that, I mean, that's a real absolute golden nugget of, you know, when you find the thing that you're supposed to, to do, yeah. 
then it, it, you know it really doesn't feel like you're doing a day's work and i think a lot of the time we do ask the well we do ask people to to kind of settle on a career very very quickly mm. without really people having a you know the chance to explore all of yeah. the different options that are available to them quite a young age to make a, a call like that but for you to find it so so early i think you know what a what a blessing that must have been Absolutely, and it's interesting. As a, I mean, I, my wife and I, we got two uh, two kids, uh, our daughter and our son. And my kids often said to me, as 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 they were growing up, and they're twenty eight and twenty five now. But you know, it's it's okay for you. You found your passion early because I would say to them, you know, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? And both my kids really took uh, a few uh, attempts, not in a bad way, but positively attempts to find the right path for them work wise. And that's great. And my wife and I are fully supportive of that. But uh, and my son used to say to me, it's, it's just not fair. You knew what you wanted to do at the age of sort of 14. And, you know, here I am. I remember I had a conversation once when he was about 20, 21. He said, here I am. I still don't know. I said, yeah, but you'll find it. It will yeah. happen. And when it happens, you'll know it. I'll know it. We'll all know it. Just relax and enjoy it. So but that's the uh, it's a societal pressure, isn't it? That you know, yes, you've got to, you've got yes. to find your path. You've got to get on it quickly as you can. Yeah. Yeah. And of course you look today, here we are in this current situation, you know, economically, pandemic wise, health wise, and so many young people who found their path are now sadly, sadly, I saw another one today, another talented young chef uh, who has been made redundant. So mm. You know, it's 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 very very it's it's tough out there, and I think you're right. Society, peer pressure, etc. Uh, and I think young people have got to be given the opportunity. It is rare. I know, I know, it is rare to at a young age to find the thing you love and just literally focus on it. The downside of it, Phil, is, and my wife says this, my long suffering, and I can tell you, uh, <laughs> in in, uh, in just three days' time, it's 31 years of marriage with my lovely wife and myself. So. Wow. I, I can tell you, thank you to her. Yeah, as long-suffering woman, uh, she she's often said, you know, Simon Esner has only ever done hospitality. So for God's sake, please don't ask him to wire a plug, but he'll make you an omelette. Yeah, um, and that is that is the other downside of knowing what you want to do so early is that I was single-mindedly blinkered vision on what I wanted and where I was going to go. That at, at the, um, the the sort of loss of any other ability in earlier years to, to gain skills. And I remember our very first flat that we had together. Uh, and my father-in-law came over to see me with a drill in my hand, literally about to uh, drill directly into an electrical cable. And uh, he, he sort of screamed, not fast enough, because I did hit the cable and went flying off the ladder. And I, there was no dramas. We didn't need the ambulance. But it was, you know, I had a bit of a shock. Yeah, but I mean that is that my ability to do anything other than, as she says, make an omelette. Do not, she says to people, please just don't ask him to advise you on anything to do with anything other than cooking. Yeah. So but yeah, you, but you did advice. learn. I bet you didn't do <laughs> well, it again. I tell you what, I I tell you what I learned: make money and get someone else to do it for you. Yeah. Who knows what they're doing? <laughs> That's what I learned. But uh, no, all jokes aside, uh, yeah, I've learned a few lessons like that over the years. But uh, yeah, so I I started washing up, did the college thing which was great. Um, in, in those days, I don't know if it is still the same, but in those days, uh, we used to have this kind of butterfly mentality where we wanted, or, or the chefs wanted the young commies to move from restaurant to restaurant, hotel to hotel, kitchen to kitchen, 
to learn from others and be mentored and learn skills on yeah. the back of your city and guilds one and two. And so I was you know, living in London. I, I was just so lucky in those times because, I, I mean, some of the best hotels were there and food was because, of course, the, the Rue brothers had turned up and turned London cuisine on its head. Thank yeah. God for Albert and Michelle. Uh, and and their their children and and oh my god what they've done for this industry is it's not even miserable. worth contemplating what it no. might have been like without them oh. well i mean, the only thing i can say to you is go to the ukraine and see the food there that's what we <laughs> would have had but that's a whole different story but i um uh, yeah i uh, i was so lucky to be around at that time where food was was changing and moving and you know, you had the various fashions, cuisine nouvelle, cuisine sans pair, and all these other nonsense things. But actually, what you had was food developing at a significant rate. Mm. Uh, and it meant that I was on that, that journey with a lot of other young chefs who, of course, uh, some are so brilliant and so amazing. I was just able to stand and look at their skill and, uh, and try in some way to emulate it and uh, occasionally got it right more often than not didn't. But yeah. Uh, it was a great time. And I, I, I literally went from the Ritz to uh, the, the Royal Palace Hotel, doesn't exist anymore, to the Mount Royal Hotel, to, and so on and so on and so on, and just learning my craft. And it was great fun. And I ended up back at the casino group, uh, working in a, 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 one of their most uh, beautiful, beautiful places called uh, Les Ambassador in Hamilton Place in Mayfair. Uh, just near what was then the Playboy Club. So it was a really great place to be for a young man. Yeah, for sure. Sad, sadly, the time I finished was also the time that everybody else did, and they were wearing big, thick coats and trying to catch the last bus. So you didn't really get a great opportunity to see anything. However, that said, uh, Hamilton Place, uh, Les Ambassador, was amazing. I worked with oh, a chef called John King. Sadly, we lost him a few years ago. His wife runs the caviar business, Kings, and... Uh, John was just brilliant. I mean, it's six foot four. We worked in a kitchen where the ceiling height was six foot one. So this poor chef had to stoop wow. everywhere. Uh, but the rest of us were all tiny little squatty things. So we were okay. Um, and I just learned so much. I mean, I just remember thinking to myself, you know, I'm holding lobsters. I'm holding scallops, which are hand-dyed, hand-caught scallops in my hand. And I'm having the, the privilege to be able to prepare those under the stewardship and tutoring of great people. And I, I did recognize it at that time that I was lucky. I could see that this was pure, for me, the best school in the world. And I was absorbing everything. So I was super, super lucky and fortunate to be there at that time. Now, of course, people say you make your own luck, etc. Et but when I say lucky, I mean, you referenced it a moment ago. And I say this, and it used to drive one of my, t still today, you are great mentors. It drove Alistair Story mad because I used to say to people, I've never done a day's work in my life. And what I mean by that is that I am so, so joyous to be doing something and being paid for mm. that I love, that I adore. Yep. I used to go home on a, 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 if you're looking, take a typical scenario of Monday to Friday. Friday evening, I'd be home, going home miserable. And I'd be really happy on a Sunday evening wow. because, you know, for me, the, the week had finished. That wasn't good. But, oh, my Christ, Monday morning was coming and I could be back at it. 
metaphorically when I talk about those days of the week, because clearly I was working on a Saturday, Sunday was a day of sleep, and bang, you were straight back at it on a Monday. But yes, I did that um, right up all the way. Oh my gosh, from from, uh, 16 through 18 through 20, uh, I, I, I didn't do the kind of going to discos and all the kind of stuff that a lot of my pals were doing, but I didn't think I was missing out because I was doing what I loved. So yeah. it was kind of cool. Uh, and I, you know, I, I still went out. I still did stuff. I mean, uh, many chefs will tell you of that era that, uh, you know, when the kitchens closed at 11 o'clock and you're working in central London, Soho was a very, very fantastic place to spend your evening, while away a few hours, losing a few quid in the Chinese gambling restaurants uh because you didn't understand the language and you knew you were being hoodwinked but and you were also getting extremely pissed uh so <laughs> but you did it and uh you, you got home on the last bus or the last tube and or occasionally didn't so went back into uh the restaurant and went into the staff changing rooms and slept in the corner on the old laundry bag and hey i'm sure we've all done that yeah. Um, <laughs> You're actually the uh, the second guest that I've had that's uh, spoken of the virtues of Soho, and yeah. um, it, the the other chap uh, who's actually works within the world of finance, right? Had the, one of the greatest lines that I've had on the podcast so far, which was, "I've got such fond memories of Soho, uh, and they're clean memories." as well oh. yeah which i thought i just you just have to justify yeah. that point with soho because it it, it brings up yeah. conjures up images doesn't it of what yeah. you might be able to get up to which is pretty much anything probably uh, absolutely well, there was a restaurant in near frith street uh, a hungarian place years and years ago and oh my god we'd finish uh, let's say you know we i've worked uh, a night working in the, the, the casanova club and uh, which is in grover street and we would then all just sort of hightail it over to um, Frith Street to this restaurant. And you'd find sort of chefs, porters, waiters, whatever, the whole crowd of hospitality people. Yeah. And we would be in there till the stupid hours of the morning thinking, OK, at some point, someone's going to tell us that we should be leaving. But no one ever did. And so in the morning came, you went in, you walked back to the same restaurant that you'd left a few hours before absolutely a very very poor condition uh, expected to do the hors d'oeuvre trolley and make sure that it was absolutely <laughs> perfect and Oeuf Saint Jolie and I don't know if uh, well, many of your listeners the younger ones will certainly not know what Oeuf Saint Jolie the older ones will and people used to have this on a, on a, a trolley an hors d'oeuvre trolley which was essentially a boiled egg in aspic jelly when you think about it with a bit of tarragon as a garnish it was ridiculous and yeah. you know that that I don't know if you remember, but the, the jelly stunk. And if you had a hangover, oh my god, there was nothing worse. You're boiling the eggs, you're letting them get cold, you're making the jelly. I still to this day hate the smell of tarragon. It just conjures up so many oh bad mornings. But anyway, yeah. that's of some jelly. There I am. I'm doing all of this, and everything is going absolutely the right way. I'm learning. I'm earning. I'm having fun. Life is grand. Uh, and then life just took a, a, a turn for what I can say, the better. Uh, so how can you Because it wasn't going brilliant? so well at this point, was yeah, it? <laughs> exactly. How do you improve on fantastic? Well, how you improve on fantastic is that one of my chefs who I was working with said, look, I know this guy, he's got a restaurant in North London, an area called Winchmore Hill, which I knew very well, having grown up not too far from there. Very affluent area. All the A-listers, what we would today call you know, the, the big celebrities. So in today's world, yeah. it would be people like Simon Cowell and P. 
Piers Morgan and, and uh, Beyonce. That I mean that level, okay. Right. But in those days, it was Des O'Connor, Ted Ray, <laughs> Cliff Richard. So big, big names. Cilla Black. All these people lived in and around that area. There was one road called the Broadwalk, where every house started in the millions and millions. And you know, uh, gosh, I mean, they were palaces compared to what I grew up in, and certainly compared to what I was living in in in, in the digs. Mm. But um, These people were the customers of this restaurant, which was in Winchmore Hill, privately owned by, there's a theme here, an Austrian, another gentleman uh, called Ziggy, Ziggy Mariaccia. And Ziggy um, was a friend of a friend of a friend's chef, and he was looking for a sous chef to join his brigade. And uh, the money was great. Uh, I think I was getting 220 quid cash, so don't tell the tax man. 223 <laughs> cash uh, for doing straight shifts, so no lunches, just dinners, and doing six of those a week. So we're talking the big bucks and every lunchtime off. So that was, like, amazing, brilliant. And I, met, I went and met with Ziggy, I met with the chef, and one thing or another, and they offered me a position as sous chef. So uh, I, I started... Uh, Winchmore Hill. I returned a living home with mum and dad because they were in Southgate, North London. So it was a motorbike ride of approximately 15 minutes. Oh. And in those days, I, I was a, a motorbike man rather than a car man. Be a little bit less traffic back then as well, probably. A little bit less traffic. And more importantly, uh, running a motorbike was a lot cheaper because uh, you really didn't bother with the whole thing called road tax and nonsense like that. And fuel, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It really was. Uh, it was a two-stroke engine I had on my phone. It was a Jawa CZ. It was a ridiculously cheap, stupid bike, but it got me around. And that was my very first motorbike. And I, I, I sort of moved up to Hondas and Yamis and such like. But, uh, yeah, I, I worked in La Fondue. And I was there for about a year. And um, the head chef said to me, look, I'm going to go over to Australia. I've had this opportunity. And I just want to see if it's going to work out. I've cleared it with the governor. You're going to be head, acting acting head chef, and uh, but we won't increase the brigade, but we'll add another commie in. And I was like, okay. So by the way, this is like the the yuppie time. This is the busiest time for restaurants. I mean, frankly, you just had to open your door and your restaurant was full. But where we were, the demographic had an expectation because they were celebrity. Yeah. Uh, you can imagine. And we had all the football teams in Arsenal, Tottenham, everybody. It was a North London. It was massive. Uh, and he was going to leave me in control, acting head chef with an additional commie as part of the brigade. Well, thanks very much. So my workload just increased significantly. Yep. And there there he went. He went off uh, with his, uh, his young lady. And they, he just wanted to get this Australia thing out of his system. So you probably call went. that gallivanting, wouldn't you? Yeah, very good, yes. So he went off and gallivanted, and um, I'm left, you know, in there, and I'm having fun, and I'm kind of, I'm I'm getting confident that, all right, all right, it's working, but maybe this comm is not so good, and maybe if we could make the chef the party, move him up, and I'm kind of playing around with a few things. So I said to the boss, Ziggy, I said, look, I think I need to make some changes, otherwise we're just not going to hit service time at the right way and everything. And he said, look, you're the acting head chef. You make those decisions. But let me just tell you something. When the guy gets back, you're gone. You're back as sous chef. Do you understand? I said, yes, of course. I said, but if I'm acting head chef, I want to act with a bit more money because money is a motivator for me and always has and always will be. Uh, it's a, it's not 
the pinnacle of success, but it shows the, your worth. And I've, I'm a great believer in that one should be rewarded for one's worth, what one is doing. Yeah, I think it's it's a, a, a discussion that's not really considered to be you know a positive discussion but i completely agree with you i've always been a big believer that that money shouldn't be your primary motivator for doing anything no but it does give you know if you if you're motivated into what you're doing and you become exceptional at what you do then absolutely that the money conversation needs to be had yeah you've got to be rewarded for for the effort that you're putting in and uh, he was cool about it, and you know he upped it another twenty quid a week. And we're going back a long time. Twenty quid, it was good. Um, anyway, that'd be worth about three, about three grand now, would it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> three three months in, and there's no sign of chef. Uh, chef ain't coming back. Uh, so um, I sort of turned around and I said to the boss, I said, "Look, you know, things are great. Could do with a, another member in the kitchen." Um, the, the KP we've got is fantastic, but if he had two arms, it would be really good. Um, <laughs> and, and you think I'm joking? I'm not. I had a one-armed Greek kitchen porter. Nice. He, I mean, he was he was great, but it was slow. We had three KPs in the in the kitchen, and he was he assumed the position of, of senior KP because a he was the oldest, and and he only had one arm, so he was the senior KP. Anyway, the long and the short of it is we uh, had a conversation, me and the boss, and the boss said, look, I, I guess he's not coming back. I've, I've had a, a letter which arrived in the post suggesting that he's really happy out there. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll just carry on as this. And we're, whoa, 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 we're, not, we're not just carrying on. No, no. I'm not acting head chef anymore. I'm either the head chef or you find one who is going to be the chef, and I go back to being the sous chef. Yeah. And by the way, the 20 quid you, get, you gave me for acting, thank you. But now we need to negotiate. Anyway, he's, he started to laugh. He said, I love it. He said, when you use these big English words, negotiate. He said, what a load of rubbish. <laughs> uh, he and I were quite close. He, he actually was a guy that took me skiing for the first time. And by the way, it was the last time. That's a long, long story. But uh, skiing and me, if you're supposed to ski, you would have big feet. I've only got size nine. I'm not supposed to ski. I, I, I'm a hundred percent on board with you. I've, um, I've, I, I've never, I've done it once. Actually, it was snowboarding. Um, in, oh, right. Uh, in powder, and then the other two times I've done it on a dry ski slope in the UK. Yeah. And I just, I couldn't get beyond the snowplow. Yes. <laughs> just I, your feet are not meant to go in that direction. Absolutely. Uh, well, all I would say is I got on well with the boss to the point where he, you know, he took me skiing to his hometown in Austria. So we, we had a great relationship and we were quite happy to talk about money. And it was a great conversation we would have. And he, he would start pretending that his English wasn't so good. Bear in mind, he'd lived there for 20 years. So we got there in the end. And ultimately, I became the head chef of La Fondue, which is the restaurant in Winchmore Hill, North London. And I stayed there for six years as head chef. And I loved every bloody day of the week. I just could not get enough of it. We never opened lunches. We had this thing, or he had this thing, that the restaurant was a dinner restaurant. But we still, obviously, we used to get there about four o'clock in the afternoon to do mise en place. And we didn't we didn't open on Sundays and we uh, we just so we had a Sunday off. It was great. And I loved it. Uh, It's also where I met my wife because she was a customer and she came in and I uh, through one of the things I used to do was walk around the restaurant 
meet at the end of service meetings you know the boss would say look you know this guy wants to meet the chef this one wants to meet the chef yeah. so there'd be various well-known people uh peter peter uh, uh alan sunderland he was an arsenal player we used to have a lot of the arsenal guys graham ricks peter shilton uh james pat jennings glenn hoddle so lots of well-known footballers yeah. and, and some quite well-known um uh, music and and, and uh, acting uh celebrities and uh, so, yeah, I'd go over, hi, how are you? I hope you enjoyed the meal, blah, 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 you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, oh, how, do, how do you make that, chef? I said, oh, well, you know, it's like this, this and this. Could you write that? Of course, I'd be happy to go. And it was all part of that whole kind of, I suppose now what happens where chefs are front of house. But this didn't happen a lot in those days. And, and the right. boss was very much about, he was, he was Mr. Front of House. He was mine host and he was brilliant at it. And part of his thing was, I want you, you're the guy that's cooked the meal, put a clean pair of whites on and get out of here and start mingling. Uh, but it was controlled mingling. Uh, I wasn't allowed to go, you know, knocking back pints and having fun with people. It was yeah. controlled mingling. And I was learning while doing that that this is actually a really important aspect of hospitality. Massive. Um, and one yeah. particular occasion, uh, my wife's uh, family were there and I just saw this really stunning young woman who actually interestingly they knew my parents reasonably well and uh the long and the short of it is because this is a terribly long story and we've only got uh, a little time but the long and the short of it is that um uh, melanie my wife her parents my parents uh, knew each other very very well my mother sadly developed uh, breast cancer and she was in the royal marsden hospital and on one particular Sunday when I was off work, I, I went up on my motorbike to visit her and my wife's family were there visiting too. And I walked in to the hospital and the first thing I noticed, this is a terrible name drop for anybody that's uh, a, a, a young man of the 70s and 80s. But uh, I walked in, the first thing I saw was Sade, uh, who uh, was there actually with her drummer um, visiting the drummer's mother, who was also in the Royal Marsden being treated for some obvious obvious uh, cancer issue. Uh, so I, I hadn't even gone to say hello to my mum when, when I'm seeing Sade and I'm starstruck. Yeah. I'm like, wow, that, that's Sade. So um, being the shy retiring bloke I am, I walked over to Sharpe <laughs> and said, um, I said, hi, I just bought your album the other week. I said, I'm so sorry. I know you're visiting here. Obviously, so am I. My mum's over there. And the lady in the bed said, oh, Helen, yeah, we've been chatting. I said, oh, well, you know, Sharpe, uh, any chance of an autograph? So she, yeah, yeah, no problem. She was really cool about it. And, and then I went over to see my mum, who said to me, uh, by the way, son, the rules are you say hello to me first before you say hello to anybody. Yes, sorry, mum, <laughs> but that is Sade. And uh, my mum said, oh, oh Sade, yes, I, I remember you like her. That's, anyway, we had that conversation. And meanwhile, there's this lovely family of uh, a mum, dad and two daughters sitting by my mother's bedside. And I'm like, whoa, well, I, I, know, I know you. Anyway, long story short. I don't even think, I don't remember actually saying hello properly to my mother that day. And I certainly don't remember saying goodbye to my mum that day. All I do remember is spending about an hour with this most amazing dynamic young woman who had captured my heart instantly because A, stunningly beautiful, B, uh, and I know I'm, I can feel myself getting choked up because it is coming up to our 31st wedding anniversary. We've been together for 33 years and we met properly at the bedside of my mum. Um, yeah. who at that time 
was um, being treated successfully for cancer. So, uh, and she had many, many years with us afterwards. So, you know, she only passed away in 2015. So we're super lucky. But we met there. And uh, what that highlights uh, to me is um, what a smooth operator you are. Oh. (laughs) Do you know what? I've I've been trying to resist dropping that in. But I just, I can't can't help a pun. I, I I too was going to, and I thought no, it would be too obvious, so I won't. Yeah. But thank you for for going down That's that right. line. I'll take the heat on that one. Yeah. A great song as well, by the way. I, I went to see her at the Albert Hall. It was a great gig. But anyway, let's not digress because I'm yeah. in danger of going off to many different pathways. So anyway, met my wife. Blah blah blah. Why is that important? You might be thinking. I'll tell you why that's important. Because a not only is she brilliant and my life partner and the mum of two amazing kids, and she's been guiding me and and us in in where we go and what we do and she is the reason i left the kitchen the love of the kitchen the love of what i'm doing was not enough in comparison to wanting to spend time with her and uh, a job came up for a company called hobart who made uh kitchen equipment yeah Man- manufactured kitchen equipment big big u.s company and they had a, a big factory in Germany, and they had a massive, massive head office in Southgate, North London, which used to be actually the old cinema where I spent a little of my childhood. And my wife, her family uh, were also associated within the hospitality world. And so she, like me, used to read The Caterer, that brilliant magazine that back in the day had a section at the back that was so thick, full of jobs. And she spotted a job for a chef demonstrator based in Southgate, North London. The deal was a company car. Have you ever heard of one of those? I hadn't. Uh, Chefs didn't get company cars. A company car, Monday to Friday, and, uh, you know, salary to be uh, discussed. So anyway, she saw this ad and she said, what do you think? I said, oh, my God. This is over the phone because you you couldn't just email somebody somebody or whatsapp somebody no 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 she had to phone me in the restaurant where i was working yes on a a landline phone indeed and she had to phone me at half past five because that was when it was the team break before we got ready for service so you know it was a lot of factors to take into place when you consider how you would communicate today yeah anyway we she had this conversation i've read this in the catering you guys okay well i've got the catering here i'll have a look for it I saw this job and I'm like, why would I want to Hobart? I don't know anything about that. Anyway, I applied for the job. And a brilliant, 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 brilliant man called David Smithson, who is still with us today. And David is a great guy. And I interviewed with him. And he was the most, in a good way, flamboyant, the most positive, everything's about having fun and winning a deal person you'll ever meet. And David said to me, look, this is what we want. Well, someone who can cook, but also has a bit of a way about them. I kind of like the cut of your jib. And I looked at him and I thought, I want to be able to wear suits like you do. Because I didn't possess a suit. I think I had a suit when you went to funerals and weddings, but that was it. And um, (laughs) he gave me a chance. And it was great. And I was working Monday to Friday and I was spending evenings with Melanie and weekends with Melanie and life was great. I had this company car, a Ford Sierra Estate in red. It was magnificent. Moved on a bit from the Cortina. Ah, 
gosh, which, by the way, was my mother's and not mine, and I never got to drive because my brother wrecked it. But that's again another story. I had um, uh, experience of Cortinas as a kid growing up. My uh, my father's <laughs> company cars were always Cortinas. Oh. Yeah, that, yeah, that dates yeah. that quite nicely. That, yes, that's the <laughs> the car of choice. Um, but, uh, no, I had so it was life was great, but I also found that I had this a lot of time on my hands, and the one thing that I'm not good at is is t- having time on my hands. I uh, I can be dangerous if left alone with too much time on my hands. <laughs> so I decided that what I would do is, you know, I've loved I've loved the cooking, I've loved what I'm doing, I'm, I'm loving working with Hobart and learning new things, and they were cre- really teaching me how to become a business person, and I was loving it. Everything was great. But I needed to do something because I didn't know what to do with every night of the week. Because obviously I couldn't see Melanie every night of the week. She was studying and she lived in Harrow. And then she and her family moved to Chorley Wood, this place out in the sticks in Hertfordshire, which we now live in. Uh, But of course, the M25 wasn't open. So to get there was a nightmare. Anyway, I saw an opportunity to go and learn how to become a teacher. Okay. And I did this at a college called Southgate now called Southgate University or Southgate Polytechnic or whatever. It was called Southgate Technical College. And I took the opportunity, but you had to have a position uh, within the faculty, the teaching faculty, before you could do this course properly. So I went to the head of catering, a chap called Mr. Eddie Berman, no longer with us, and I asked him if I could do uh, a part-time shadowing teaching course uh, on his faculty, his teaching faculty, whilst I did this uh, teacher training course. And he said, yes. And that was great. So I did. And I did this course and I loved it. And part of the course was I, I had to have X amount of hours in a month where I was teaching. Well, it worked out super for Mr. Eddie Berman because Eddie Berman had a free evening class teacher for students that wanted to do, mature students that wanted to do a 7061 City and Guilds. Right. So my job was to do lesson planning for my course that I was doing. Eddie Berman would uh, would show me and tell me the courses that he wanted me to do and to, to talk me through it. So he would be guiding me. And then I would have the students turn up for a 6.30 in the evening lesson. They were mature students, anybody from the age of 18 upwards. And my teachers who were teaching me were sitting on the class to make sure that my lesson planning and everything was going as should. And I would have a moderator from the catering team who uh, and faculty who would be in the class too. So I was kind of super supported. I've got a catering lead if there's a problem. I've got the people who are teaching me how to be a teacher if there's a problem. And then I've got my own little bit of knowledge about food service and cooking. So I'm kind of thinking not a lot can go wrong. Oh, how wrong you can be. (laughs) Anyway. As soon as you start thinking that, that's usually when things start going wrong, isn't it? Absolutely. So I am, anyway, I've done a few lessons and I'm doing my course and it's all going okay. Until one particular day, and we were talking about uh, the different cuts of vegetable. So for the chefs amongst uh, your listeners, if they haven't fallen asleep already listening to this most boring <laughs> podcast, I uh, was taking them through Brunoise through to Macedoine, so the various cuts of vegetable. And I had this young lad, he was about 18, and he'd obviously been a bit of a, a challenging chap at school, and I recognized myself in him. 
And he'd been forced to do this evening class. You're going to, you know, you can't do anything. You're bloody useless. You're going to go and learn to cook, which, of course, is what a lot of, uh, sadly, in those days, uh, young people thought, well, you can't do anything. Go and be a chef. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, those days are long gone. But uh, anyway, this kid. Uh, so I had uh, in the class, uh, I had this big mirror that pretty much looked at what my hands were doing. So the students would be gathered around the bench looking at me, looking at the mirror and seeing uh, the, the, the sort of how I was using the knife, and et cetera, et cetera. And I was doing brunoise through, you know, uh, Julien and so on and so on and so on. And this young man was to my left shoulder and I had, and he was just constantly in my left ear, just giving me jip and just giving me cheek. Right. And whatever it was, at one particular moment, and I don't know why I can't recall the words he said, but I had my hands, right hand, on a head of celery. And his face and that head of celery connected <laughs> because I couldn't take it any longer. So imagine the scene. There am I. Hello, class. This is what we're doing. Jip, jip, jip in the air. Celery. <clears throat> straight into his face. Well, of course, pandemonium ensued. The catering lead in the class has run over. First thing he, she's done is made sure all knives are down. Then she's looked at me and she said, you've got to leave this classroom now. My tutor who's tutoring me has sitting there with his head in his hands like, no, no, no. So I'm now thinking, well, I don't think that was a good lesson. So I get taken <laughs> out of the class, get taken out of the class, and I'm now in the corridor. And I'm like a naughty schoolboy. Because I'm now being told off, not only by the catering person saying, you cannot do this to one of the students. We're going to get sued. You could have blinded him with the celery. And I'm going, he'll get a lot more worse when he goes into the real world. Don't worry about the celery going in his eyes. He'll be getting it somewhere else. Yeah. No, stop talking like that. You can't say that. Okay, fine. Anyway, the long and the short of it is we got through that episode where the following day I was called in from the principal of the college, the head of catering. It was a nightmare. So there's things I wish I'd never done. That's one of them is I wish I just didn't have the celery in my hand. But on the other side, at least it wasn't a knife. That's <laughs> very true. Yes, yeah, so celery is a little bit more uh, for forgiving it certainly is um uh, what i would say is that that young man never returned to my class uh, i did complete my course i did get my qualifications and i took up uh, a role of part-time teaching at the college which i thoroughly enjoyed and i think that's what took me on to becoming a mentor later in life because i've always enjoyed teaching yep. but uh, i'm going down so many avenues and and I, I really don't want to get lost on that so that's that's how i got into catering that's how i ended up as a as a chef in my own restaurant, and then ultimately moving into the business side of, uh, not in my restaurant, sorry, as the head chef for a restaurant. And then I ultimately moved into the business side of, of hospitality, working for Hobart. And I had a lot of great success with them, so much so that I got uh, headhunted by another uh, similar company who uh, had a product called Raw, which were handmade uh, in France, handmade stoves and ranges that went into restaurants such as the Connaught, Claridge's, Etal. Right. So um, it, I'd moved up a level from what Hobart did to these guys. Did uh, Hobart have uh, a product called a potato rumbler? Absolutely, and still do, by the way, sir. Yeah. Oh, made them a lot of money. The funny thing about that is, is that it's one of the, the first pieces of equipment I can remember when I worked on cruise ships and made, made a move into food yeah. and beverage. And, of course, we're dealing with so 
you know, massive volume of oh, people on a daily yeah. basis. And it used to be a joke that we'd play on new coming chefs is that you'd, you know, you'd oh. send them down to the prep room to, to scrub all the potatoes when yep. obviously you've got the rumbler there to... In fact, we had four of them. We had four rumblers and we only ever had two in circulation at any one time mm. in the event that one of them went down. We could just turn on another one yeah. uh, and so on yeah. and so forth. But um, yeah, that, that, that machine, I think as a time saver, and this is the Hobart are not sponsoring this uh, show in any way, shape, or form, but um, a game changer for a volume and uh, volume environment. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, that that was one of their pieces of kit. But uh, no, I so I moved with another company, and the Great Recession came, and the last thing any hotel and restaurant in uh, in London wanted to do was spend more money on um, their chefs saying, "Yeah, we'd like to have a brand new range, please," yeah. which is going to cost twenty, thirty thousand pounds. So I, I'm kind of out of it. I've got, I'm made redundant. So that, that's a bit of a shock. I've now got a wife. Uh, we've got a small flat, uh, a wife that's actually expecting our first child. This is, this is, you know, a bit of a difficult time. Yeah. Whenever there's a bit of a difficult time, opportunities are always there. You don't necessarily see it at the time, but uh, like a lot of chefs, I always wanted to be chef patron. I wanted my own restaurant. And uh, I met. A, well, I was made redundant on the Friday. On Saturday, I was working in a kitchen. Even though obviously the whole redundancy pay was going to happen, I took immediate leave because uh, when I was told about the redundancy, I rang every restaurateur and chef I knew, and lo and behold, they needed someone. So I I took the job and went straight back in the kitchen. And I always remember my dear dad saying. Once you've got that piece of paper, you can work anywhere. You yeah. can always be able to prove you can do the job. So I was super, super lucky that uh, he'd encouraged me to to uh, to get the city and girls along with Chef Mitter. So I went and worked in this restaurant. I met a guy while I was there who was a landlord of another place, and his current tenant was um, was looking to move out of the, the restaurant. Uh, it was in a place called Radlett in Hertfordshire, very very much an AB1 demographic, still is today. And I took over the premises and changed everything about it. The menu was modern European, Italian style for for then. So we're going 1991-ish and just had the best time. I mean, it was amazing. We opened the doors, people came in. My head waiter is a guy called Jamie, Jamie Mar, a Portuguese guy. He ran the front of the house. Uh, and he every day uh, he would go out to the front of the, the the restaurant and he would throw salt all over the front step. Whatever time of the year it was, spring, summer, autumn, winter, he would throw salt. Right. And I used to say to him, Jay, why are you throwing salt? This brings the customer. So I let him do it because I have to tell you, it always brought the customers. Right. Now. I'm hoping that there was great service, the ambiance, the food, the wine might have contributed. No, it was all but the salt. But I also believe it was the salt. And <laughs> um, we had an amazing time. And and then our daughter was born and her first proper meal was sitting on a table eating minestrone. Uh, we just had it. I mean, there were, of course, look, there were problems. We, uh, I'm not going to go into all of that because for me, I think, Everybody who opens a restaurant, you experience challenges and problems. I had a business part that I should never have had. It taught me that actually I can run a business without relying on other people. Like many others, I have the whole imposter syndrome. Yeah. I had to get that out of my head. So 
The long and the short of it is we ran the restaurant very, very successfully to the point that our son was born. So he's 95. He was born. And it was like, oh, uh, you know, maybe I probably need to spend some time with these little people. And uh, right time, right place. A lot of luck. Uh, Still there today. A company called Pizza Express wanted the property next to me, which was a hardware store. And they offered great money. We took the deal. And... uh, I was very, very, very super lucky to find a gentleman called John Simons who had a business called Hallmark Executive Catering, and he was looking for somebody to join his team who he could teach how to do contract catering, but they had to be a chef. Right. He didn't want just a seller, and they were based in Hartford. And in fact, again, it was my brilliant wife, Melanie, who found the job in the caterer, and I went to meet him, and... You know, in life, you can meet people and there is an instant click. Yeah. And John, and to this day, John became my second mentor and a hugely important mentor in my life. Taught me so many things I cannot tell you about business. Taught me how to use a computer. Taught me how to distinguish between a Saint-Emilion and a, and a Burgundy. I mean, it really just the most amazing life lessons I learned from John. And he supported me amazingly and allowed me to make mistakes, allowed me to learn. And Hallmark ultimately got sold to a company called High Table, which is now called Elior. Yeah. And there uh, I met a, a wonderful gentleman who is still to this day a dear friend, Tim West, who was the boss of High Table. And Tim my learning continued working under Tim uh, and working with Tim and the great people there. Oh, I mean, just fantastic. Rob Kirby, who's still there today, and Mike Sunley and so many other wonderful people. Uh, Rachel Lindner, they, they just taught me so much. And um, I think the key point you made there was, was around having a leader who gives you the opportunity to make mistakes. And, mm. and doesn't mm. crucify you for it because it's um yeah. it, you know it, mistakes are part of life it's you know, it doesn't matter how long you do this for you're always going to yeah. do something wrong absolutely absolutely well as you as as i said at the very beginning uh, even to this day where i'm forgetting i've got a zoom and i'm drinking beer to my heart <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still making mistakes uh some would argue that that was the right thing to do but there yeah. we are I am um, super, super, super lucky to work with such amazing people. And um, anyway, through working at High Table, one thing or another, I'd I'd met a guy in the circuit, on the circuit of of uh, food service management, contract catering, whatever you want to call it, a, a gentleman called Nigel Anker. And Nigel was the MD of a company called Halliday Catering, and they were looking for somebody to head up their sales. They they'd had a previous guy doing it, but they were looking at change and growth and one thing or another. And he said, again, through a mutual friend, he said, would you uh, like to come and have a meeting? I was like, yeah, but A, I don't know anything about Halliday. And B, uh, you're based in Wokingham. And I don't even know where that is. <laughs> so he said, it's down the M4. And I said, what, what's down the M4? I said, the M4 stops at the, the Queen's Castle, Windsor. He said, no, actually, it goes all the way to Wales, and it's a really interesting motorway. Anyway, um, <laughs> I am geographically challenged. One of my colleagues, a great guy, Richard Pierce, worked with me for many, many years. He always called me geographically dyslexic. Anyway, <laughs> digressing. I, uh, I met with uh, Nigel at the Copied Beach Hotel in Bracknell. Yeah, I remember that. Next, next to a dry ski slope. 
there you go. Oh, yeah, yeah. Could have, you could have been there. Yeah, may, maybe. Uh, I think I have actually been to that very uh, dry ski slope, there but there we are. The John Nike, John Nike ski slope. Anyway, I, uh, I meet him. And in comes, uh, and these are the days when you could smoke cigarettes. And I smoked, good God, I smoked like a proverbial chimney. And I'm sitting in the in the Copper Beach Hotel, whacking through half a dozen Rothmans and just waiting. And Nigel comes in and all of a sudden behind him comes this lady who I'd never met, never seen in my life. And I just thought, wow, she's a striking, not like in a, in a um, like, oh, wow, pretty girl kind of, but striking gait about her. Her presence was was something else. And she came and sat there and she said, uh, oh, I could absolutely do with one of those. I've left mine in the office. Can I have one of your cigarettes? So I said, yes, of course. And I thought it was Nigel's secretary. And, he, and Nigel said, oh, you know Linda, don't you? Linda, no. This is Linda Halliday. Oh, shit. This is the woman I'm supposed to be interviewing or interviewing me. Yeah, so V Halliday. We, um, yeah, exactly. So we uh, we start talking, and within about I'm going to say, well, she we've argued this over the years, uh, and we're we're great friends. We're very very great friends now. We were at each other's kids' weddings and everything, but uh, we've argued. I said it was twenty seconds. She said it was it was a minute. So I'll go with her on giving the privilege to the lady. But within a minute, we both decided that not only did we really really like each other, but actually. We had a, uh, a mutual understanding of where we wanted to go. And we just clicked. And it was amazing. She said to me, you and I are going to have, with Nigel and Arthur and uh, a couple of other guys and girls that were there, we are just going to have the most amount of fun building this business, which at the time was only single-digit turnover kind of thing. So uh, I, I took the job. The biggest decision I had to make was should the Mercedes be black or silver? I mean, it was just a different world. Yeah. And Nigel, because I was moving from the city where I, of course, you know, I was a drunken layabout, functioning alcoholic for, for high table for a number of years. Mm. Uh, he, he installed in, in his office a minibar, which he filled with uh, Chablis, which was very, very good. <laughs> Trouble is, as I said to him, this is all good, Nigel. I had to drive to get here. Ah, yeah. Uh, well, we'll have it at lunch and it'll have worn off by the time you go home. I mean, this is how crazy life was in those days. Long story short, we're in that. We've done it a couple of years. We're having great fun. It's a lovely little business. And then my mentor number three and still my mentor and uh, the biggest supporter of me, someone who has guided me, who I I just think is a genius in business alice the story uh, yeah. uh, together with his business partner keith wilson i uh, had left granada food services and set up wilson story and uh we merged and became wilson story halliday and that for me was the moment that for me my life changed for the better it was already brilliant it just be- it just became super yeah, you keep upgrading your life it seems from a yeah. position of uh, well, of of upgrade yeah, uh, super, super lucky. Uh, genuinely, he said to me, we were in Victoria Street in a coffee bar called Leonardo's, and we're back in the early days of WSH, the original WSH, which stood for Wilson Story Halliday, now stands for Westbury Street Holdings. Ah, and right, he okay. said to me, he said, where do you think we could take this business? So I thought, I'll be adventurous. I'll say 100 million. Bear in mind, we had a turnover of jack shit. So <laughs> I said 100 Is that million. jack shit million? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, sorry. Yes, or, or euro. Yeah. Um, and um, he said, uh, he said, no, he said, no, he said, I, I think we could do a billion. 
Now, I looked at him, okay, and I looked at him and I thought, okay, this is 20 years ago. I'm thinking to myself, you can't call somebody crazy in broad daylight. It's just not <laughs> acceptable. Plus of that, I mean, whatever you say, he is your boss. So you can't call him crazy in public. But when I got home, I said to my wife, I said, this guy's a nutter. <laughs> he thinks he's going to take an independent contract catering business to a billion turnover. Anyway, she said, well, just don't tell him that. Don't tell him he's a nutter. Just see what happens. Well, of course, I was proved wrong. And of course, he was proved right because under his stewardship and working with some of the most talented individuals in, on this planet, Alice's story has taken WSH pre-COVID to a billion turnover, wow. which I am absolutely honoured to have played a small part in, in that happening. So to be involved with a company that had the growth we had, organic, there were acquisitions, etc. But most of it was organic. Um, under the stewardship of Alistair was, uh, you know, to sit there and, and look at how he structured a deal, look at how he thought things through and involved in every aspect of the business was it's, it's life changing. And anybody that has the opportunity to work alongside and with, with him, and, and he's still there today, I can tell you, knocking it out seven days a week, 24 seven in mm. his head. The guy, it's, it's, it's a privilege to, to be able to, um, to be able to work with him. So I, I spent, you know, the last, what, 20 odd years working as a, a very much a, uh, a part of a team to build up the the great business that it is today. And as we we've grown, you know, Ben Ugo came along, the brilliant Ben Warner, and then we we sort of had some other superb colleagues, um, Noel Marnie, who heads up Baxter Story, a, a dynamic, restless, and he always uses that word. He's restless for more in a good way. Yeah. Dynamic, restless leader who who just wanted Baxter Story to grow and grow. Uh, I'm delighted to say that I had a, a really a great part to play in developing Portico from the business. And then latterly with Monica Galetti helping to set up that restaurant for her. Uh, and my final yeah. uh, element for WSH was to create with, with um, I didn't do anything. Remember, I don't work, <laughs> but uh, I connect, connect and bring people together. But uh, to, to create a, a business called The Collection, which is a, an event and venue finding business, which I'm super proud. Of. It was the last thing I kind of did before. Sadly, 2014, 15 for me, um, some health challenges came along, which meant that I, I had to make some decisions, reference work. And so around about 2018, decided to take uh, less of an operational role within the business. Um, with uh, And I have to say, with, without without the tremendous support and encouragement and care of Alistair's story, uh, I could never have made those decisions. So I'm so fortunate to to have him in my world. My family are fortunate to have him because he he cared. When I was, I was pretty unwell, and he, he made sure that my wife didn't have to worry. He constantly checked that my kids, who were young adults then, my kids were okay when I couldn't. And I think that is a mark of a man that goes beyond human being he is a yeah. superhuman being to me and you speak as you find i can only speak as i know in my heart how uh, how important he he is and continues to be uh, in my world so but uh, this is not a, a, an alistair story love no, no. <laughs> i think um decisions like he made though are very very easy and straightforward when there's a mutual respect on the table the i think a lot of the time business gets overthought and it's all about 
pound signs, etc., yeah. etc. And of course, that's important yeah. in business. But but actually, the human element of business for me is is how a business becomes truly exceptional. If yeah. it's just purely business by spreadsheet, then you know it, it, that's going to oh. fall on its backside at some point because there'll be no yeah. heartbeat and soul uh, to the business. Absolutely, Phil. Absolutely. Yeah, I was lucky enough to to meet Alistair. He probably won't remember this because it was at a networking event where I think he met about three hundred people. But <laughs> I got thirty seconds with him, and you could, there's a lot going on behind the eyes. I think even yes. just yeah. in sussing yes. people out quickly. And um, mm. yeah, I mean, he's a, he's an impressive guy. I, I would no, you have no argument from me. But um, so that takes us, I guess, to to the point of where where we are now and uncommon sense. Yeah. So you know, I, I mentioned earlier on the worst thing you can do is give Simon Ezra nothing to do. I become destructive, <laughs> which is why I I, I, I learned to become a, a teacher. So one of the things I've always enjoyed and I, I've been very, very fortunate. I was uh, invited to be some years ago, a trustee and board member of hospitality action, the industry charity. And through that, uh, and also springboard, uh, I'm a patron of, uh, again, uh, an industry charity. Yep. I've got into mentoring uh, young people through that. And then through various uh, re- relationships and contacts, uh, the university of Surrey. And for the last five years on their hospitality and tourism course, their, their final year students, they have a mentor to take them through their, their final year. And I've been doing that for five years. And what I realize is actually it's it's really fulfilling for me to to see people working through their, their career, their opportunities. Uh, and I, I can play a little role in that. So I decided when I'd made the decision together with Alistair to, to do less operational and effectively become more of a non-exec director for WSH and and that's where I am with WSH today. Great companies <laughs> wouldn't 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 uh, wouldn't do anything other than uh, work with them if if I was given any choice. But uh, it came to the point I said, well, I need to kind of do something. So I set up Uncommon Sense, which is essentially a mentoring business for uh, young people who are on the kind of middle level of their sales and business development career. So not at the beginning of it. But they're moving up and it's how can they take themselves from being a sales manager from good to great to exceptional to supersonic. And uh, that's that's very much what uh, Uncommon Sense helps and, and unlocks the opportunities for, for people to do. Yeah. Uh, add to that, I've also taken up a few non-exec director roles, which are helping various companies primarily focus my area is to focus on 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 how growth and business development can can uh, enhance their businesses so uh, i'm really loving that it's great the charity you know working with uh, mark lewis and uh, and all the team at hospitality action it, it's just a joy because of the, of the work they do and helping so many people and it couldn't be more needed than it is now agreed uh, i think if any anybody listening to this is in a restaurant and sees the invisible chips Please buy the invisible chips. They a they're low calorie, which is great, um, and and b uh, more important than worrying about your own calorific intake is uh, that the, the money goes directly to those that need it. And uh, I, I urge everybody to uh, to get involved in if they're in the industry of hospitality. Uh, hospitality action is there for you, and it will help you. And I have countless stories of people who have been helped by hospitality action and. Uh, they're even right up, even if you've only done a week's work in your life in hospitality, they are there for you. So uh, I, I'm uh, hugely uh, excited to continue to be 
a trustee and a board member there. Just to kind of, I suppose, wrap it up, I, I, there was a couple of questions that you asked me when you very kindly sent me uh, the invitation to, to join this podcast, which will probably rank amongst one of the probably boring ones that you can put in the back Nonsense. of the, uh, the Nonsense. But, um There's some nuggets you, you in asked, here, don't worry. Ah, well, you, you asked the question about, uh, and I loved it, is if you could go out for a drink with three people, well, as you know, that, that happens constantly with me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, from any life. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, so I, I kind of put it down, and I, I, I have checked this out, so I know that uh, one of the people is still alive. But the first one, and by the way, I am, I, I'm a cook, as my wife says, he'll make you an omelet, don't ask him to do anything else. So I know nothing. But the first person I want to sit down with and have a drink is Boris Johnson. Okay. And I just want to say, I just want to say, Boris, what? What? what why, mate, what, what's happening? Please. You know, I, I want to have a conversation. I just need to understand why he's doing and what he's doing. I don't want to make it political, but I would like to have a drink with him. Don't the other know one, your, um, your, your business name, Uncommon Sense. There's a, there's a lot yes. of uh, Uncommon yes. Sense on show. Absolutely right. Baffling decisions, but anyway, that's a yeah. that's a yeah. chat it, for it, another time. Absolutely, and I and I don't think it would be fair to the listeners to to to, to go down no, the this politics is not a political road. piece. <laughs> no, uh, the other one, and and believe you me, uh, if if this person would ever agree to just even just talk to me, let alone sit and have a drink and a meal with me, is the brilliant George Benson, who I have loved since I was a kid. Probably the finest uh, exponent of the guitar that you would ever find. His music is to die for. If you have the chance to listen to anything from George Benson, go on YouTube, go on Spotify, wherever you find your music and just download any track you like. It doesn't matter. Any track, you will be transported into a new world. George Benson, I love him. Very good. The final person, the final person for me is a gentleman I mentioned at the very outset and he is still alive and he's an, he's an octogenarian. That's Graham Kerr. Because I want to say thank you to Graham Kerr because he started me on my journey of hospitality. And I would love to sit at a table with a red gingham tablecloth and just watch uh, him have a meal that I could cook for him. Right. Because uh, he, he, he started, in my mind, he started uh, my journey. So I'd really, I'd love to do that. And I think if I, if I can finish, in, in case you've got, before you've got any other questions, but you, are, you asked another question about the last ever meal and drink. And I really thought about it. I thought, oh, should I be all hospitality and chefy about it and start, you know, naming amazing chefs and all of that? But, you know, one of the things that's happened in my life, and truly, is I, I get to have lunch with these people often. And yeah. I am so blessed and lucky that, I mean, the great bear, Pierre Kaufman, I've had lunch with several times. I don't want to make this a whole name drop thing, but I have, you know, Ben Tish and so on and so on. And so on. I have spent time. Monica Galletti and so on and so on with these amazing cooks, these amazing chefs. And I'm so lucky and so joyful to have spent time eating and drinking with them. So if it was my last ever meal, as you'd asked me in your little note, Phil, you've seen only via uh, the power of the internet, but I would like to be at my home in Portugal with my yeah. family, all of my family, in my outside kitchen, cooking a meal that I know they all love, different meals because some of the kids don't eat certain things, but I, I would make it, the menu would be whatever. Having a beautiful chilled Alvarino from the, the Mino Valley, which is considered to be the true home of, uh, of Alvarino, the Portuguese Alvarino. And for me, that would be it. You, if I did that, 
and I watched them all eating and drinking and enjoying. And then it was my time to go. I'd be the Happy best. Place. Ah, I would need nothing else. If I couldn't do that, then I'd say, could I go and have a lunch at Claire Smith's, please? Because I love her food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as discussed earlier on, there's a time and place for everything, right? But the, um, exactly. the, the I think the, the interesting thing about that is that the majority of people you you speak to and ask that question too usually it's quite a humble meal you know it's not mm. it's not a, an eight course tasting menu with matching wines oh, God, although no. to be honest that if i was on my own that that would be my mm. way to go for sure mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but you know as you say i mean there's a time and a place to go and experience claire smith and there's a time and experience yeah. to have as cherish Finden so quite eloquently put it beans on toast with a, yep. a glass of chablis you know, it's um, if you're just into food, I think it's such a mood related topic, yeah. you know, and also your surroundings where you are at the time and you just highlighted Portugal, you know, yeah. we've all been on wine tastings somewhere in the world and you've just found the most amazing wine you've ever drunk. And then mm. you bring a bottle back home and you open it in your house and it doesn't taste anywhere near <laughs> like it did um, when mm. you were in the vineyard. And there's a reason yeah. for that because of the... Yeah emotional and psychological responses that are going on while, while you experience it but um absolutely no well look i mean that's that's an epic career i mean you're not you're not finished yet either and as i said oh gosh no you're um you're now giving back and i've been on uh, lucky enough to to be on the receiving end of some some chats and i think what i like about our discussions is that i think i get correct me if i'm wrong but i always get the feeling that you you think i already know the answers you just you just help me get there, and well, that is mentoring. Yeah, that is mentoring, Phil. And there's nothing clever about it. And I mean, I didn't even get to mention I'm a fellow of this and a fellow of that and all this other nonsense because it's not important. But you're you're absolutely right. And the key to mentoring, and I was taught this when because I went through some training, obviously, uh, to to make sure I wasn't going to you know screw people's brains up. Yeah. Um, and uh, the the reality is that most people already have the answer you've just got to help them find how to articulate it or how to how to how to feel it and uh one of my mentees at the moment has significant difficulties in terms of disability and uh you know we're working through some stuff together Uh, and it's a long long journey but i already know that she has the answer she has the answer she knows the answer and at some point over the next few weeks months however long it takes the answer will come to her and I'll be able to sit there, look back at my notes and think, yeah, she, she knew that 12 weeks ago, but I won't tell her that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, to, to wrap things up then, um, yes. I, historically I've always asked the question, what would you say to somebody who was considering a career in hospitality? But I've actually, I think I've come up with a better question, which is just oh. a little bit more positive in its focus. And that's just quite simply why should somebody start a career in hospitality? Why should somebody start a career in hospitality? Because if you take a career in hospitality, it doesn't just mean that you're going to be a cook or a waiter. You can be an accountant. You can be a head of human resources. You can be a supply chain expert who can deal with logistics that rivals any large organization, shipping company. So in other words, within hospitality, the career 
everybody often thinks, oh, hospitality, that's a waiter. Oh, I did that when I was at university or college. I, I, I waited tables or I cleaned glasses in a pub or I cooked on a, a grill station. That's not hospitality. A career in hospitality can take you, for example, an old has-been like me who started off washing up, standing over a sink with pots, to becoming a senior director within a one billion turnover business to helping to guide and develop brilliant talent, but also myself being guided and developed as I went along that career. And the, the chances are endless and the opportunities are magnificent. Yeah. That is why you need to take a career in hospitality. Hear, hear. Well, I think that's a, a wonderful way to leave it. Simon, Thank you very, very much for your time. I know we've run Thank over you, a little sir. bit, but actually there's, there's, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. And so you don't need to be sorry at all. I'll get your, edit, your editing scalpel out or however you do these technical things. Yeah, it'll be 20 <laughs> minutes by the time I'm finished. Yeah. Yeah. Good man. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll just end, end with hello. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice one. Thanks, Simon. Take care. God bless to you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation. No problem at all. Speak soon. Have a great afternoon. Bye-bye. You too. Cheers. Bye-bye. A truly epic career so far from Simon, who now takes great pleasure and pride in giving back to where he can. If you feel you could benefit from some high-level mentoring, then I suggest getting in touch with Simon. He's a total legend. Don't forget, we launch a brand new episode each week, so hit that subscribe button and give us a like and a share where you can. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>